0: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshall and today we're going to talk to Charlie Angus about his history of silver mining in Canada. Charlie Angus is an author, journalist, broadcaster, musician, and a politician. An NDP member of Parliament for the writing of Timmins James Bay in Northern Ontario, who ran as a candidate for the leadership of the federal NDP in 2017. He was born in Timmins, but moved to Toronto as a young adolescent and then founded a punk rock band when he was still in high school. He moved to Cobalt with his wife and young family in 1990, where he has lived ever since. His newest book, Cobalt, Cradle of the Demon Metals, Birth of a Mining Superpower, was published by House of Anansi Press in 2022. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast.
0: Well, in your day job, you're an active member Parliament, and you have numerous areas of responsibility as NDP critic. How the heck did you find the time to research and write this book?
1: Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, and my region that I represent, timmins James Bay, is bigger than the United Kingdom, so it's a very busy uh, responsibility. Um, I, I guess one of the things that's, uh, to me, in politics, I, I, I love people's stories, I love knowing about where we're from who we are and i also think maybe one of the only ways i survive in politics is i always i always have a side project something i can think of something i can dig away at and search and so this is my eighth book and i think i've probably written about four of them while being a member of parliament um, i used to say my favorite people say where's your favorite place to write I love writing in airports because I'm stuck for a couple of hours. I got nothing else to do. It to me, it's a great chance to go over notes. And uh, so this book, this book was a lot of work because I had to do a lot of research, and I took a long game on it. I knew it was going to take a lot longer than I thought, and I just stayed focused on it in the off times and in the evenings, and sometimes on weekends, going to archives to try and build the body that uh, became the book.
0: Well, given the uh, research that I've seen that was put into it, it it must have taken years to do.
1: It was a much longer project than I initially thought, um, partly because I really wanted to. It was it was a bit of a detective story because there's a common history we know of the North, common histories of Canada. I've always been fascinated by histories that aren't told, and it's not. Sometimes I think that historians deliberately leave stories out. Is it? sometimes people don't realize that what was happening is history because it, it's not seen as important. So we have, we have the the memoirs and the stories of the, you know, the town founders, the mine finders. Um, I knew there was a much richer and, and at times darker history, but finding that felt like a detective uh, journey for me. Finding a photograph, well, who was in that photograph? It's a multiracial couple. Okay. So, I, I thought, you know, the frontier was basically all white. So what was the multiracial aspect? Well, who were these people? And sometimes it would take years and years and years to piece together some of the stories that appear in the book. So it, it, it was about details. A lot of the book was about details and, and just following a lot of threads down a lot of strange rabbit holes.
0: Right. Now, the cobalt mining boom between 1903 and 1921 was, like most booms, quite short-lived, but it had dramatic effects. Describe what created this boom in the first place, along with the geography of the area, to give us an idea of what was going on.
1: Um, I think to understand cobalt, which is only 500 kilometers north of Toronto, you have to realize this Community did not come from anything that we know of in central Canada. It really is an orphan of what was the last of the wild west American boom towns. Communities like Cripple Creek, the Comstock Lode, like the legendary gold rush towns of the American West, was pushing further and further. It pushed its way to Alaska and Yukon. Ontario was not really seen as a place where you went and explored and invested. So it was a decision by the provincial government to run a railway uh, into the north, basically to claim the land because the land was being uh, pretty much taken over by a, um, French settlers coming over from Quebec. So it was it was a it was a uh, an attempt to claim the land by putting in a railway, and they accidentally discover silver. And not only do they discover silver, they discover silver of such incredible richness that hit. Wealth like that had never, ever been seen, not even in the gold rushes. So this sudden, easy, rich wealth just north of Toronto hits sleepy Edwardian Canada like a high-octane jolt. It transforms development in Canada. The money that comes out is so phenomenal. It creates a whole new class of, of millionaires and financiers. And really, the effect is not so much in cobalt. It is in Toronto, which goes from being very much a um, – a regional town to what it is today, which is the world center for mining investment. If you want to get a mining project in Mozambique or in uh, South Africa or anywhere in the world today, chances are you're going to end up in Toronto. And that goes back to the impact that the the cobalt boom had um, on the Canadian economy.
0: Now, you take uh, some effort in recounting the fact that silver mining was important in this area around cobalt long before European settlement. Uh, A history, in fact, that was largely ignored by those who told the story of cobalt before you. Can you tell us a little bit about this uh, pre-settler history?
1: Yeah, I think reestablishing the indigenous history in resources is really vital because this is the heart of the conversation that canada is having we are coming to terms with the history we didn't know we had our our knowledge of the the north is the story of you know settlers going up and finding all this incredible wealth and and creating the great canadian nation state and yet what we know about cobalt is that silver from cobalt has been found in archaeological digs uh, in georgia Uh, Pennsylvania, New York State, Michigan, in these massive indigenous burial grounds that were known as the Hopewell Mounds, which in itself is an incredible story of human engineering. And the silver from cobalt is traced back 2,000 years. So at a time when the the Athenians were first starting to mine silver to create the Athenian state, uh, city-state, my, silver is being mined by indigenous people in cobalt, I think that that is a really important part of our national history. And yet it's always been overlooked, left to the side, considered the stuff of archaeologists. Well, to me, that's the stuff of our nation's history. We need to know what what, what about these indigenous trading networks and the values of, of metals that were mined in Northern Lake Superior, in cobalt, and other regions of, regions of the country.
0: No uh, before we go on, is we need to clarify why the town itself was called cobalt, if in fact the main activity was silver mining. What exactly was going on there?
1: Well, it, the, it is a very ir- ironic thing that the town is named cobalt. And I spend a lot of time in my book talking about the mythologies of mining and the mythologies of metals. And the cobalt is a derives from a German word, the cobalt, that was a medieval demon living in the hearts of the mines in Germany. And it, of course, is traced to the metal cobalt, of which there is a massive uh, mining rush and almost a a geopolitical struggle to to control the cobalt market today. And I talk a bit about that. But cobalt, when it oxidizes, turns pink. And one of the things that was fascinating to people coming into cobalt was that the the mines were like rich streams of silver cutting through the rock and they had this incredible pink glow and that was the metal cobalt so they named the the town cobalt for the beauty that the the, the pink ore had uh, but it was very ironic that they were naming the the town for a demon metal that has a really dark and troubled history. And much of that plays out in the story of cobalt. This is the land of the cobalts and the cobalts, you don't wanna mess with them. They can give and they certainly can take it away. And that's something that mining lore has always talked about as this dark troubled history. And I thought it was fascinating that this town that ended up uh, with a, also a very dark troubled history is named after uh, the demons of the mines.
0: Now, as our witness to yesterday, can you put us in the shoes of a man or a woman arriving in the boom town of Cobalt near the beginning of the boom, let's say around 1906, 1907, hoping to hit pay dirt? What would that person have seen, heard, and smelled at that time?
1: Well, at the beginning of the 20th century, the stories of the great gold rushes uh, were hugely uh, important um, in terms of people's sense of culture and people's their stories their whole mythologies we had just the Yukon the Klondike had only been three or four years before that but to get to the Klondike was this death-defying travel through the mountains it was so difficult well to Cobalt all she had to do was get on the train Uh, there were maps all over America saying how to get to Cobalt on the train, so thousands and thousands of people decide they're going to try their hand in the you know in this great rush. Um, so from the beginning, Cobalt is a very multicultural place. You have Syrians, Russian Jewish people, uh, Italians, uh, it, and and again, as I said, a very multiracial place, which is very unlike Ontario at the time. But this does not look like any town that anybody else has ever seen. It is. Basically, a bunch of uh, scrap shanty shacks built on probably one. One journalist said it is the worst piece of ground in North America because uh, it was rough, hard rock shield country. So you've got tents, you've got shacks, you've got mines, literally pushing people off their homes. Uh, there's open blasting. Um, they're they're drilling in people's backyards. There's no sanitation, no sewage, and yet. What are they doing? Well, they're building ice cream parlors to try and sucker miners out of their money. They're building, they've got brothels all over the place. They're they're starting to build a whole series of vaudeville theaters at a time when they don't have clean drinking water. And all these gaudy street signs, and it looks very much like this slapdash stage set for a bad Wild West play, and yet thousands of people are coming in. Day after day, people are coming into this place that is not set. for for water there is no sanitation Uh, there's no place to live really so people are living on top of each other and all the while they're building this downtown with crazy stores selling every possible thing because mining a mining boom is about taking people money as quickly as you can so that's you've got everything from pool halls to um, to dance halls being set up in this scrappy piece of really bad ground
0: Now, you've alluded to this already, but you described cobalt as the cradle of Canadian mining. What do you mean by this?
1: The term cradle of Canadian mining has been given to cobalt from the Canadian mining industry because the wealth from cobalt generated... uh, Many of Canada's biggest mining companies are directly descended from the wealth of cobalt. The exploration that came out of cobalt launched... Towns like Kirkland Lake, the the rich porcupine gold fields, you know, uranium city, rouyn Naranda, Valdor, uh, the the exploration expertise, the prospecting money, this all fans out across northern Canada, creating what is today, of course, Canada's massive mining industry. But the real powerhouse increasingly becomes Toronto, where uh, some of the most dodgiest. Uh, stock mining and fraud practices become um, part of part of selling the boom, selling the myth of the, the the vast riches of the North. So they talk about cobalt as the cradle of the industry, and I. So in the book, I look at well, what did come out of this cradle? Because some really great things came out, and some really bad things came out. But uh, and if you go back to the cradle today, there's no sign of money anywhere. There's just you know the the, the holes in the ground, the poisoned rivers. Um, All the wealth that was so immense, and and just to give you a quick example, the wealth was so immense that there was going to be a miners' strike in Cobalt in 1916, and the British government called the Canadian government and said, you cannot have a miners' strike in Cobalt because it will affect the British war effort. That's the kind of wealth we're talking about, and yet there's none of it left in the community when it's all said and done.
0: Well, talking about that strike, uh, you argue that class struggle was part and parcel of boom towns like cobalt. Can you describe the cobalt general strike of 1907? What took place, uh, why, and um, can you describe its uh, longer-term legacy?
1: One of the things when you read Gold Rush stories and, you know, the American West, the stories of the cowboys and the cowboys and the gunfighters, but a lot of the development of the American West was mining. And some of the bigger gunfights were not in saloons. They were on picket lines with the Western Federation of Miners was the organized structure of the miners in the West. And the gun o- and the mine owners in the American West, the rapacious face of Gilded Age capitalism, I mean… They fought it out with guns. They fought it out with Winchesters. Um, And so at a time that cobalt is being discovered, there is in America, in the American West, one of the worst, most violent labor conflicts in its history. It's called the Colorado War. And what really struck me was the amount of miners who were coming out of the Colorado War to get away from the gun battles, but also the mine managers, some of whom were hired gunmen in that Colorado War, and they all end up in cobalt. And so... You know the class conflict in the American West is brought into Cobalt, and so there's a there's a radical labor element that exists in Cobalt that you're not seeing elsewhere in Central Canada. People like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn uh, who shows up when she's 19 to organize the miners. Uh, Big Bill Haywood uh, comes to Cobalt. It's huge news. A guy called Vincent St. John, the Saint, who is who was a gunman for the the the, the radical left Wobblies, and so in 1907, um, the Cobalt Miners Union go on their first general strike. There's about 2,500 people on strike in the town. It is a long strike. It is a, the first general strike in the North. And it is, there's a number of things in that that really show a kind of a, the, 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 the new radical face of, of labor that comes, we get to know as the Wobblies. Um, but out of that strike, um, Cobalt becomes the center of social activism and it leads to the, the winning of the eight-hour day underground and the most important um, victory of the Cobalt Miners Union is the passage of the Workers' Compensation Act on April 28, 1914 and Big Jim McGuire, who's one of the legendary cobalt um, um, union leaders is, is credited with the passing of the Workers' Compensation Act, which there had been nothing like that before, and it was needed because the injuries uh, in the mines were so horrific, the, the pe- men getting their hands blown off and leaving families that they couldn't feed, people being blinded by blasts, people being killed in the mines and when we look at April 28th today April 28th around the world is the International Workers Day of Mourning, where we we, mem- we we remember all over the world workers who died on the job that date is chosen because of the success of the cobalt miners union so we've forgotten so much of our labor history in Canada and we have some incredible stories of the struggle to, to get what we now have, which are in the mines, the highest wages anywhere, the highest safety standards in the world are in Canadian mines, that comes from the people like Big Jim McGuire and the Cobalt Miners Union, who r- literally fought out some pretty rough battles uh, in the streets of Cobalt with the mine owners to get what we now assume today are the rights that workers take for granted.
0: Well, let's move from workers' uh, rights now to uh, finance capitalism, and you emphasize cobalt's central role in the creation of the Toronto and Vancouver stock exchanges. What exactly was this connection?
1: Well, cobalt begins really as uh, as an extension of a huge stock market boom in New York. The original investors are in New York City. New York has become the in, by the turn of the twentieth century the world center for 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 capitalism, and uh, so you have rich uh, uh, tycoons like the Guggenheims trying to, to corner the market in cobalt, and, but from the beginning not only is there incredible wealth coming out of the mines, but there's incredible stock fraud hitting the, the the New York and London stock exchange so much so that they start to get very nervous about investing in Canada because there's the real money to be made in mining is not digging with a shovel. It's selling paper and claiming that you own a mine. Uh, so give me, give me some money and uh, you'll be a millionaire. And it, it was like a, a really con man lottery. And after a while, the American regulators start to really look down on this, they call it a wild west of financial um, promotion, and Toronto steps up. And Toronto originally, 1909, the joke was that Toronto was where you went to catch the train to go to cobalt. But then Toronto really becomes this place of buccaneer mining promotion. So we have a stock exchange established in cobalt in 1907, again in a town like a shanty shack town and they're hustling stocks meanwhile they're the stocks that are being sold in toronto are being sold in the lobby of the king edward hotel so by 1908 the toronto mining exchange is established and then the vancouver exchange is established because they have so many so much interest in cobalt stocks so that sets toronto and vancouver up for the role that they've they've never given up and out of Toronto has seen you know, some of the biggest mining investments in world history and also some of the biggest mining scams. I mean, Canada was famous for BRIAC's uh, windfall. And a lot of the reasons that we are so notorious for mining scams, and I talk about this in the book, is that cobalt built a framework for how to become rich in the mines. And it was a regulatory framework of some of the lowest tax rates in the world. Uh, Corporate protections, uh, the ability for mine promoters not to really have to prove exactly how much was in the ground for you to invest in it. And it's the reason that today, 75% of the world's mining industries are registered as Canadian companies. Now. A lot of those mining companies are never going to do any business in Canada, but they're established in Canada because of the kind of protections that they get as as um, investment companies for mining exploration. And again, that all goes back to the protections that were set up to just keep driving this unprecedented boom of speculation and wealth and heartbreak that was, that was generated by what happened in Cobalt.
0: Now, just... 50 kilometers south of Cobalt, you had a very different development at that time, and that is the summer camp that was established on the shores of Lake Tomogamy. It served the elite of Toronto, in fact. So how did this development, as opposed to the mining developments north of it, fit into the notion of Empire Ontario during the Edwardian period?
1: I was really uh, struck by the term Empire Ontario, which the economist historian at the time, Harold Innes, described as Ontario's plan for the taking of the North. This was a colonial venture. This wasn't just the province was expanding. They saw the North as a colony to be exploited. So there are two really interesting elements in that colonial expansion one was open season on the lakes the rivers the the forests in cobalt but it's on the exact same land base as one of Canada's most iconic wilderness excursion places tomogamy and for people you know who know like uh, the the image of the canoe on the shores of Lake Tomogamy is iconic it's in all the photo these photo books of Canada it's the postcards and so you have this dichotomy of of land that is actually beside each other almost one that is completely supposed to no people are there it's this wilderness you know excursion thing and then the other is wide open rape and pillage and so i I was really fascinated by that dichotomy but also how carefully curated The story of tomogamy was as the image the spiritual place of Canada our northern you know the group of seven um paint in tomogamy and it's it's a place where the elite children of the empire Ontario would spend their summers at camp canoeing and and in the in the the famous uh, summer camps of tomogamy so I I really tried to to look at how Canada developed its it's very strange relationship to, northern, to, to its Northlands, which is we either see it as a spiritual, pure place of wilderness, which it's never quite been because industry's always been there, or it's open season, it's either, it's either Lake Louise or it's, it's the oil sands, it's cobalt, or it's the beauty of tomogamy. And, and I argue in the book that going forward as a nation, we really need to come to terms with how we see the land and also, who's on the land because that land has always been indigenous and the indigenous people have always been there. Tomogamy was not a landscape that was, uh, uh, you know, that was empty of people and meant for tourists. It was a land where they tried to force the indigenous people off the land so that they could turn it over to wealthy tourists. So, these issues of resource exploitation, land protection, environment, it all These are all the issues that we're dealing with today in a a time of indigenous reconciliation, uh, resource development, and climate change. And these were all issues that were being battled out in cobalt and tomogamy a century ago.
0: Your chapter on the 1909 fire in cobalt and subsequent outbreak of typhoid uh, is fascinating. Can you tell us what happened? What were the events associated with the fire and then the typhoid outbreak, as well as the anti-Chinese and other nativist outbreaks that occurred at the same time?
1: Well, I think the issue with cobalt from the beginning uh, was that the, the the need to establish a community that was safe for the workers and the families was just not on anybody's agenda. The province wasn't interested in it. The companies weren't interested in it. They were interested in making as much money as quickly as possible. And from the beginning, the, uh, this crisis in the community in terms of bad water, um, lack of sewage, the, the, the horrific conditions people were living in uh, kept being ignored. And by the summer of 1909 in what was known as the, the either French town locally or the foreign quarter, which was heavily, uh, you know, where many of the immigrants lived in these sh- like shanty shack little neighborhoods, caught fire on a hot summer's night in July 1909. It's a horrific fire. Um, and then that leaves thousands of people homeless. And again, they have no access to clean water. And what results is a horrific typhoid outbreak, where hundreds, uh, where hundreds and hundreds of people were affected. Many people died. But even as people are dying, there's this push, you know, by municipal authorities, by promoters, to just keep selling the myth of Cobalt as this land of wonder. And I write a lot about how this battle was being fought to keep a positive image so that investing would still happen, even as people were being getting sick and dying, even as the, the mining companies were kicking women and children out of the hospital because they wanted their their men at the mines not you know to, to get health services. So many more people died than needed to die. And what comes out of this, uh, and it's one of the real tragedies of the story, is this very fragile multicultural society that is being born in cobalt Uh, begins to fracture and I, I make the point very clearly in the book that Canada's multicultural story doesn't begin in places like Toronto it begins in in the frontier in places like cobalt and so it begins with a really vicious backlash against the Chinese population who were blamed for starting the fire uh, by, you know, the white media, uh, backlash against the Syrian community. Uh, it leads to the, to a murder of a, a Chinese young man. And uh, these are all the stories that were left out of all the histories i read, of all the stories that I've been told about COBOL. Nobody wanted to talk about those darker stories. But I thought this is really important because we need to remember that as as incredible as the multicultural story is in Canada, there have been really dark waves of xenophobia that have actually gone through communities at various times, and those times of crisis, economic crisis, times of social fragility, and in cobalt, what happened in that 1909 fire sets off a pattern of, of blame and violence that um, has been very much swept under the rug, but I think is really part of the story as well.
0: Now, what impact did the First World War have on cobalt? And I note that the mining boom ended shortly after that. So, what was going on in terms of the uh, the First World War, as well as uh, the events shortly after the First World War that brought everything to an end?
1: I think um, our we we have in these sort of our Canadian sense of history of ourselves these sort of heritage moments and one of our great heritage moments is you know that at the battle of Vimy Ridge uh, April 1917 Canada became a nation we we all, all the things that divided us we came together and certainly in Cobalt many many uh, people served and fought at places like Vimy Ridge and and uh, Cambrai and the other battles but what really struck me from reading from the times was as the outbreak of the war was sort of seen as a great adventure in other places like Toronto, there were people on the streets celebrating, they thought the war was going to be this short adventure, uh, and then of course it turned into uh, you know, a horrific slaughter. In Cobalt, there was a lot more trepidation. There was a lot of Americans in Cobalt who thought, what are we going to war for? This has got nothing to do with us. But Cobalt's largely immigrant population suddenly found themselves as enemy aliens. Uh, People who had nothing to do with the Germans, but the Germans and Austro-Hungarians control lots of land. So people start getting blamed, workers start getting fired. There's a lot of division in the community. Um, And one of the things that happens is that the mines, which had had really developed uh an ability to make an enormous amount of profit even from the waste rock there was a lot of research to, to build the mines in cobalt to make them last longer when the war comes the mines basically start to what we call high grade they they go after the easy the easy wealth they're making- re- record profits. There's a lot of anger in the community because people are not able to pay bills. Um, there's frustrations between the immigrants, the people who've been fired, those who are over-serving, there's men at home who are working. There's, so there's, you got all the social division. And meanwhile, the mines are stripping the riches out and reinvesting them in places like Timmins, where um, many of the mine owners from Cobalt just took the money out of Cobalt and, and started to, to move it elsewhere. So at the end of the war, Uh, 1919 I call it the fever year across the world there was a lot of conflict a lot of labor strife there was a massive general strike in Cobalt in 1919 because the workers say we want a fair share but what they don't realize is at that point a lot of the mines have been stripped of their wealth and um, there's more really ugly uh, immigrant backlash as the war ends and then pretty much the mines begin to close and so Cobalt really doesn't survive the First World War and it it's and how we look back on Cobalt is this pre-war period that's seen as this kind of sepia-toned innocence but you know it was a very rough place uh, the war qu- quickened and hastened the 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 collapse of the the Cobalt story and many 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 people who were there uh left by 1920 21 people there's a mass exodus in the community there's, lives in its shadow life ever since.
0: Now, in 1990, your wife convinced you to move from Toronto to Cobalt. It must have been a ghost town when you moved there. Uh, is that when you decided to write this book about Cobalt? Did the ghosts haunt you?
1: <laughs> cobalt is a town full of ghosts, yes, and the ghosts haunt me uh, continually. My wife and I moved came to Cobalt in 1990 just as all the the... the there was a whole mining wave of silver and, and iron mining uh, that uh, had been going on through the 70s and 80s. All those mines shut down. The grocery stores shut down. There had been another huge fire in what was French town in the late 70s. So the town seemed very faded, and and um, but there was something fascinating about it. And I loved the people. And as the mines were shutting down, the town made a decision to rebuild. It's old vaudeville theater, which to me really struck me about the spirit of the town. So we have this beautiful theater in this town where people are saying it's dying, but it never does die. Cobalt doesn't die because people love it, and the memories and the sense of history is so compelling. So when we first moved up, my wife and I wrote a book about Cobalt called We Lived a Life and Then Some, which we tried to sort of look at a lot of the myths, and and it was maybe a funner book than this one. Um, but um, I, every day when I'm at home, I'm out on the back trails. The, the trails go forever. You always find new mine sites you didn't know existed before. I, I help out at the local museum. We have probably, well, by far the most beautiful collection of silver anywhere. And people are always sharing stories of cobalt because it, so many people came through. And one of the things that's fascinating, beguiling, and tragic about mining booms is it people from all over the world come to them, and they get to live lives that they would never have dared live at home. They, they, they become characters in their own stage play. And some of those characters become much, much, much larger than life, and some characters don't. But there's enough of them to keep the lore and the history going. And, and, and it builds a kind of a, a defiant spirit, an openness, a sense of being part of a bigger, broader history I, I don't know, I, I could talk about cobalt forever because I just find it's such a fast, it's so tragic, but it is so fascinating and I love its chippy defiance.
0: Well, let me uh, let me ask you one final question because of the importance of cobalt and electric ba- batteries, among other things today, there's a real boom in cobalt mining, you mentioned that at the beginning. But how does your cobalt, your town of cobalt and the mines around it fit into this? Is there going to be yet another boom in this area because of cobalt?
1: Well, certainly, again, the, the, the dark and troubled nature of cobalt, the metal, it is now known as the miracle metal of the digital age. If we are going to escape catastrophic climate change, cobalt is a key metal in creating the batteries that would be needed for a digital future. But it's also known as the blood metal because of the horrific human rights abuses happening in Democratic Republic of Congo. There is a massive search for cobalt anywhere that you can get cobalt that's not tied to the human rights abuses in Africa. So in the summer, the the exploration helicopters are flying over, they're searching for cobalt. Cobalt though, is it's a defiant little uh, an elusive beast because when it rains, the old timers told me, look when it rains, you can see the pink glow of cobalt on the rocks and you can see it. Like if you start to look for cobalt, you can see it. Is there enough to make a mine? Uh, maybe. Will it compete with what's happening in Congo? I don't know. But a a mining operation has set up in cobalt to to manufacture cobalt from other sources. That will put it in the supply chain of Silicon Valley very quickly. So we're now looking to the Demon Metal. Will it uh, give us a better future? Perhaps, but I think also people in cobalt have been through enough booms and busts that if we do get a new boom, they want to, it. it's got to be done right. It has to involve indigenous people. It has to protect the environment. We have been through the good side and we've been through the dark side of mining. So uh, people are, are ready for another boom in cobalt, uh, but we're also, we go in, I think this time with eyes wide open.
0: Charlie, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you. This has been a lot of fun.
0: My guest today was Charlie Angus. His book... Cobalt, Cradle of the Demon Metals, Birth of a Mining Superpower, was published by House of Anansi Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the Social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, and we want to thank the L. R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshaldon. This interview was recorded on March 22, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.